Hello, Wizards listeners. Before we get the show started this week, we did just want to acknowledge something that occurred in the Wizard universe uh, over this last month. Uh, something that you likely saw on our feed if you follow our social media or any of the former Wizard staffers that we have had on the Wizard files. Editor-in-chief of Wizard, really the co-founder of Wizard magazine, Pat McCallum, passed away in July, just after the 4th of July weekend. It was a shock to all his friends and former former collaborators, whether it was at Wizard or DC Comics, where he had quite a career as well. And so we just wanted to acknowledge that and uh, once again send our condolences out to all his friends and his family, especially at this time. Pat obviously was the voice of the magazine, as you have heard over and over again in the interviews that we have done. Uh, Certainly a man that we had hoped that we would get a chance to talk to, and unfortunately now that is not possible. But I will tell you, uh, because it has been a question that has come up, we have been in contact with and been contacted by many of his former co-workers at Wizard want to pay tribute to Pat. Uh, We don't know 100% when that is happening yet. Of course, everybody's just taking some time to process their loss, but that will be a special that we put together as we give a chance everybody to share some of their favorite stories about Pat and what he meant to their lives. So that is something that you can look forward to and that is on the horizon. We will be paying tribute to this man who meant so much to all of us for the entertainment he provided and for the friend that he was to so many. So just wanted to give you a heads up on that, but let's get into a very fun episode of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 60 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Currently debating whether or not to buy a robot assassin from a vending machine and programming it to target DC's Resurrection Man, you know, just for kicks, I'm Adam, and Michael couldn't join us tonight because if you could believe it, he was taken hostage again. What a popular guy. This time it was by the evil forces of Co- Cobra. I can only imagine what plans Dr. Mindbender has for my dear co-host, but luckily we have another real American hero with us tonight to help bring Michael home safely. As far as we're concerned, the fact that this man has a full run of Wizard and Toy Fair magazines makes him a truly heroic figure. But speaking of figures, he's also designed tons of packaging for your favorite throwback G.I. Joe action figures of the last decade, including the awesome new Sergeant Slaughter figure, which is fitting since he also also designs amazing in-ring gear for current WWE superstars, so it is our great pleasure to welcome to the show, Adam Riches. How you doing? I'm great, fellow Adam. How are you? <laughs> right? Yeah, it feels like, uh, you know, if you lose a Michael, then you have to double up on the Adam factor. So two Adams for the price of one. 
if if this episode goes remarkably well, it's it's Michael's fault that this turned into Adam Squared, you know? That's what happens. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of our abundance of Adams on the podcast tonight, I feel like it might get confusing if I refer to you as Adam all the time. I might start answering the questions myself. So is it all right if I call you riches? You absolutely can. Go for it. Does that mean then that neither Larry Hama nor Hasbro has given you an official G.I. Joe code name yet? Um, I mean, to some extent, I, I guess my my own self-appointed G.I. Joe code name is Wide Scope because if you have the Wide Scope version two action figure, which I painted the card art for, I used myself as a model. So hey, there you go. There is sort of a G.I. Joe figure loosely modeled on me. That, that's not that's not the code name I necessarily give myself, but you know, I'll, I'll take it. Well, since we're talking comics here, then it begs the question: Did you ever mail away for that custom G.I. Joe action figure? I am blanking on the name right now, but it was something some. Br- br- Brigade, and you could mail away. I, I remember seeing it on the back of an ALF comic. Yes, yeah, Steel Brigade. Yeah, that's it. Shockingly, I, I didn't, and I, I have no good reason why, because I was definitely mailing away for other stuff at the time. I don't know if it just didn't speak to me as a kid or what, but I, I wish it had, because it's a quite expensive figure now. Speaking of those childhood days gone by, we want to find out not just your favorite action figures, but your favorite comic books. So, Riches, why don't you tell us your origin story? <laughs> I just want to say right off the bat, I know you've had some absolutely killer guests in the last few episodes and some coming soon, and I just want to say there is no way I'll be able to provide anywhere near the level of insight that someone that actually worked at Wizard was editing for Marvel or my buddy Jimmy Palmiotti could provide, so... As long as we get those listener expectations real low for this one. I'll give you my origin story real quick. Um, <laughs> as far as discovering comics, I went back and looked. I think the first comic I ever remember owning is Spectacular Spider-Man 180, which has a September 91 cover date, uh, and I was quite young, kind of five, six years old at the time. As far as how I got into comics and, and toys and all this stuff, like, I, I just, it just never left me, I guess is the short answer. I grew up drawing and, you know, you, you know kids that throughout their life will go through the 20 different, I want to be a doctor, a lawyer, a fireman, a spaceman, it changes every day. Like, that never happened for me. Like, I felt like I was predestined that I was going to have a career in art and design pretty much from, you know, as soon as I was talking. <laughs> There's days where I wonder if I was crazy for not deviating from that, but um, it's also kind of cool that, like, I, I always sort of had that. I mean, we have so many, like, pictures and videos and stuff of me as a kid feeling that way, and it, it's it's kind of interesting to feel like you were almost on, like, a predestined path, because they're really... I didn't have, like, Joe Kubert or John Romita or something as a father, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, like, there's nobody in my close circle that's in the industry or that, that even really pursued art in any kind of professional or serious capacity. So I don't really know what led me down this path, but basically just a, a lifetime of, of being a fan and collecting, reading comics, cartoons, toys, video games, and, you know, and endless love for it that just eventually, you know, when it, when it got too old to be uh, socially acceptable to collect, I just turned it into a career. <laughs> nice loophole you found there. Now, uh, one thing that you had mentioned to me, and I brought it up in your intro as we were preparing for this episode the fact that you have a full run of wizard and toy fair magazines obviously there was a love there for those publications so can you tell us a little bit about your early history like just finding the magazine reading the magazine what made you love it so much 
But I think it was probably right around this time that I dropped off as a reader of Wizard and transitioned to Toy Fair, but obviously eventually went back and got all of them. But I think I was probably just a little too young to submit or, or didn't feel confident enough, I should say, to submit any kind of fan art. Um, Homemade Heroes was an enormous inspiration for me, though. I mean, I can't tell you how many figures I ruined because of that. So many <laughs> things that I was like, oh, I could do that. And, you know, broke heads off things and badly painted them and, and stuff that years later I was trying to restore and undo my childhood damage on. But yeah, I, I think just growing up in a in a pre-internet era in that time period, you know, it was the only place to, to get this much sort of aggregated comic book news in one place or, or toy news, you know, on, on the other end. And um, I think it was just, it was, I'm such a visual person. It was just so exciting to flip through it and just to see such a wide variety of art and styles and stuff. Because even as a kid, like I, I'm sure a lot of the articles were, you know, way over my head or like I wasn't really retaining them the way I probably should have been. But, you know, when you buy a comic book, you're getting 30 pages of one art style. When you bought this, you were getting exposed to art from the whole world over from, you know, a million different pieces of people. And it was just, I think that's what really drew me to it. It was, it was just so cool every month to, to have so much style inspiration and especially seeing upcoming toys and stuff. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't even know how I actually came about knowing it existed. I probably found it at like a grocery store or something maybe, but instantly hooked. And I was a subscriber for several years of Wizard and then, like I said, eventually dropped off and subscribed to Toy Fair, which I, I kept that until the end of the run. Wow, that's wild. Okay, so I mentioned a little bit about your career up top, but for those who don't fully understand what it is that Adam Riches does, can you explain kind of your career path and the type of projects that you work on? I think that would be very much of interest to our listeners. Yeah, you know, it's funny whenever you have like like a, like a the doctor's office or something and they ask like, the, you know, what's your career kind of thing? Like, I didn't even know how to answer that question really. I mean, I, I guess I want to say I'm an illustrator is like the catch-all term, but I, I'm a comic book cover artist. I've worked for pretty much every major publisher at some point, Marvel, DC, IDW, Boom. I do a lot of toy design work. I've done designs for Super 7, Boss Fight Studio, NECA, Hasbro. I've done costume designs for the WWE, and then some of those designs have been turned into video games and action figures by Mattel. But a lot of just oddball stuff, too, that I don't even really talk about online because I feel like it doesn't really have the, the fan following that I'm necessarily, you know, out to attract or whatever, but, like, I've done storyboards for commercials for uh, for an em emerald uh, crock pot. <laughs> Bam! Had to do it. <laughs> the most off-the-wall stuff, like, if it involves art and, and some kind of practical element, like, I'm involved in it. I mean, but my real passions, I would say, are... are all pretty much surrounding like the toys and comic book stuff but I, I've, I've kind of dabbled in it all it's been a wild ride kind of never knowing what the next thing's going to be like I and, and I'm kind of at a point in my career now where I can thankfully dictate that to an extent but I've, I've done character designs for tv shows I've done animation designs for DreamWorks and Disney I mean just like you you name it all, all kinds of weird fun stuff yeah so kind of like a have pen will travel type situation right and this issue actually feels like it's also kind of all over the place you never know what topic is going to come up next but we always like to start out you know you might have back in the day thought to yourself maybe i need to write into some artist or some toy manufacturer for advice so we're going to check out what the readers of wizard were writing into magic words with willie lumpkin's mailbag So the saga of Paula, the wizard fangirl who sent in a picture of herself 
dressed as Vampirella last year for the Halloween contest, and then this year sent in a picture of herself dressed as Razor. It continues in a most interesting fashion. As you might recall, in a recent issue, Paula authorized Jim McLaughlin to provide her P.O. box to the readers of Wizard for those who wanted to start some correspondence, and she has collected the data, provided an update of how that went. So the first stat here, the total number of letters received, five 571. That's a lot of lonely folks. Letters from males, 565. (laughs) Big surprise. Yeah. (laughs) Letters from females, six. (laughs) Letter writers who said they were not geeks, 549. (laughs) Sure you're not. Uh, Letters from prisoners, three. Letters from servicemen, 14. Letters from outside the U.S., a.k.a. international pervs, 37. Letter writers who thought that I was the real Razor model, two. Might as well have been. It was a pretty good costume. Letter writers who sent in pictures of themselves, 41. The content of those photos is not disclosed here. That's probably for the best. Letter writers who sent in artwork, 16. Hey, could have been a young Adam Riches. Could have been. Letter writers who appeared to be real psychos, 5. <laughs> As opposed to the other uh, 500 and something fake psychos, yeah. Uh, <laughs> le- letter writers who made sexual references, only 7. That That's surprisingly low. Showed an awful lot of restraint there. Yeah. <laughs> The majority of people, about 90%, ask me for more pictures of myself, and I'm still receiving about 10 to 20 pieces of mail a day. It's been fun so far. Please feel free to run my address again, along with one of the new photos I've enclosed. Tell everyone they can keep writing, although I can't promise a personal response. Oh yeah, and tell those five psychos not to bother writing at all. <laughs> oh, Paula. Man, this letter, uh, if, if she hadn't given a P.O. box as an address, I would be convinced that this was just bait for to catch a predator it really does feel like a pre-internet taking over everything way to do that you're right (laughs) uh so how about you read jim mclaughlin's response here a mere 96 percent of the people who wrote to you felt a need to explicitly state that they weren't geeks Methinks they doth protest too much. But that's quite the response there. Heck, those numbers are about the same, or gulp, slightly higher than the ones we get for magic words. What you trying to do? Horn in on my territory? You'd better watch your step, Missy. <laughs> you know, the one statistic that I am not seeing there, it just seems like it would be so obvious to include, is how many of those people were asking for dates. I have to imagine it was more than half. Yeah, I almost wonder if those uh, those responses were edited, because I was like, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, Granted, it was a different time, but I feel like if you put this out into the world now, I I can't even fathom the responses it would generate. I mean, look at what the things people are willing to publicly write on Twitter and imagine what you'd get private response in this. Exactly. All right. Well, we have another one up here with Jim McLaughlin getting a bit of a curveball. He is answering the age old question proposed by Jeremy Strunk of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Hey, wizard, what the heck is a bat mite? An old Jim's response here, a bat mite is a lot like a bat flea or a bat tick. It could usually be taken care of with some good grooming of your dog or the right medicated powder. See your veterinarian for further details. 
<laughs> I do have a letter I, I feel like we have to draw uh, attention to. I might be totally wrong, but on page 10, there is a letter basically talking about how gimmick covers are bad. And I think this letter might be written by none other than a young Jim Rugg of cartoonist kayfabe fame, a f- future uh, Eisner award-winning comic artist. Uh, but this one's written by James Rugg, so we might have to do some investigation. But he is from Pennsylvania, so maybe. Wow, good catch. All the pieces fitting together there. You know, I'll mention just real quick, when we were putting this podcast together, uh, we had no idea that Cartoonist Kayfabe existed. For those who don't know about their YouTube channel, they actually go through issues of Wizard Magazine, but in video form. And it's a very different format from what we do here, since we're focused more on the history and behind the scenes and all that. But it was interesting because as soon as we started the podcast, somebody reached out to us once and they were like, so did you intentionally rip off Cartoonist Kayfabe? And I was like, well, I didn't actually know they existed until we had actually started the podcast, but maybe we're due for a crossover over someday. The good news for the listeners of Wizards is that you guys are putting out episodes at about a four to one ratio to what they are. So if you ever want to see the end of the Wizard saga, I feel like this is the source to stick with if, if you want to get to that in this lifetime. Yeah, and I actually did watch like one or two of their episodes just to understand what they were about. And in one of those episodes, they said specifically, we're only going up to a certain year. I feel, I feel like it was like 99 or something like they said, at this issue number, after this point, Wizard didn't matter to me, so I don't want to cover Whereas, yes, we will be covering Wizard until the bitter end and how bitter it was. Uh. <laughs> but when a major publication decides to close its doors, whether on the comic book side or the magazine side, there's usually a headline. So we're going to get into it all now with a little bit of... Our top story tonight, Wade leaves X-Men, cites Clash with Lobdell. Yes, Mark Wade has dropped out as the writer of X-Men comics after just six issues. Wade explains that it is not a case of bad blood, just that, quote, as it turned out to our mutual horror, we are completely incompatible as writers. Actually, Wade even says that he gave Lobdell some of his earliest work back in the day, so they're friendly, it just didn't quite work out. And it all was kind of in the cards as editor-in-chief Bob Harris explains, quote, Mark's agreement was that he would work on the X-Men for a six-month trial basis. And then Wade clarifies, I feel bad because I don't want to be one of those guys who comes in or does six issues and blows out. Bob Harris and I just had to shake hands and walk away friends. Which is kind of interesting, a little bit more bitter when we heard Dan Jurgens leaving Sensational Spider-Man after just six issues. He had a few more words to share about how he thought things were running at Marvel at the time. But Wade will continue to work for Marvel, writing a case Azar series drawn by Andy Hubert while continuing his Flash and Impulse books at DC Comics. So, Riches, we have to know, were you reading X-Men at this time? Were you an X-Fan? Very sporadically. I I was and still am such a fanboy of the late 80s and early 90s era of comics, and when the style change starts to occur, which is is right around this time period where you're seeing more of that that manga influence and people like Joe Mad and that that bad like airbrush-looking digital coloring, the glossy paper, I I don't know if it was my age at the time or or, or just that natural thing where you sort of fall out of comics for a while. But this era of X-Men just really didn't connect with me in the same way that the Jim Lee, Andy Kubert kind of era did. And in fact, I think you can almost pinpoint the exact moment they start to lose me on X-Men. It's when they added that 3D Circle X logo on the covers under their Marvel logo. I think that that, that was like the, the kiss of death for me. So I, I have sporadically picked up some of these issues over the years, but like... Can't say they do a whole lot for me, honestly. Yeah, I feel you, because it was like Age of Apocalypse, and then I was done. I was just like, "Mm, yeah, just not down with the manga. That's never been my favorite form of illustration. 
Next up here, in what Wizard is calling the worst-kept secret in comics, the former writer and editor of too many Marvel comics to name, Fabian Nuciasia has been appointed as the new editor-in-chief of Acclaim Comics. Now, he is replacing former founding father of Valiant Comics, Bob Layton. Quote, one of Nuciasia's major assignments will be to revive Acclaim's flagging Valiant imprint, including Magnus, Solar, Exo Manowar, and Turok. Assisting him will be... Wouldn't you know it, Mark Wade, along with big names like Kurt Busiek and Garth Ennis and even Kevin McGuire, just to name a few. So I have to ask you, Riches, did you ever give Valiant or Acclaim Comics a try in the 90s? I was definitely into a lot of Valiant's licensed stuff, like especially like the Nintendo books, the wrestling books, all that stuff in the early 90s. I don't recall ever reading any specifically Acclaim branded comics, possibly Killer Instinct. I think that might have been an Acclaim miniseries. Really? I mean, I played the game. I never knew they had a licensed comic. And I definitely had some like Turok issues from a multi-pack, but those might have been Valiant, not, not part of the actual claim brand i'm not sure yeah, I mean, I definitely had Turok number one. You know, at this time, I had recently discovered Exo Man of War, became a big fan. But when the Acclaim relaunch happened, I was not a fan of that interpretation. And so it just kind of fell by the wayside. But that Acclaim pulled me back because they introduced this book called Quantum and Woody, which is absolutely one of my favorite comics of the 90s. It is just so unique. It was by Christopher Priest was the writer. M.D. Bright was the artist. And just the nature of that comic, just the racial issues it deals with, the friendship things that it deals with, just full of comedy, though. It was a comedic take on superhero duos, definitely kind of had a lethal weapon vibe to it, but man, just so original. Uh, If you've never read that, I recommend you and everybody else go and give that one a shot, because Quantum and Woody is something special. On to the dollar bin search list it goes. <laughs> Why don't you take the next story here? Marvel editors James Felder and Stan Hayden have created a college course at NYU called the Stan Hatton Project, an homage to Marvel legend Stan Lee, which is a way of honing the plotting and scripting abilities of up-and-coming comics writers. The two most recent graduates who are finding work at Marvel at this time were Jamie Campos and Joe Kelly, who went on to write X-Men, Spider-Man, Deadpool, Superman, JLA, and even co-created Ben 10. Yeah, it's just interesting to hear those names, because they both went on to do some stuff, and Joe Kelly in particular, right? It's just interesting to see kind of the uh, the jumpstart they were given in a way by this program. But specifically Ben 10, my kid was just bugging me today. He's like, hey, they took Ben 10 off of Netflix. So he's a fan. <laughs> it, it is wild that you have those guys sometimes like I think I want to say like Donnie Cade started as like a Marvel intern and there's like pfft, you know like once in a while you just you hit on those people that they just skyrocket through the system and never look back you know yeah definitely you just never know now finally here Wizard ran a poll on America Online asking users to vote on who they thought would become the biggest characters in comics during the next five years so Teen Titans were at the bottom of the list with 3% Elektra got 6 Hulk grabbed 11% and Superman scored just 14%. And that means that the runaway winner with 66% of the vote was everyone's favorite comics icon, Other. Yes, other master of indecisive possibilities. So I must ask you, Riches, what do you think Other's power set would be? Oh, man, this is too funny. I I imagine Other being almost like an amalgamation of that that Combos Man promotional comic and like that that 
X-Men Captain Universe comic where they print your name <laughs> in the story, perfect. you know, like, like other is somehow both the most generic and powerful hero in the universe simultaneously. <laughs> like, what can't other do, you know? <laughs> I love it. I think a secondary power, though, is that other never looks like himself. So he's everyone and everybody. I say this because recently in our interview with Jimmy Palmiotti, he's like, haven't we met before? And I just had to tell him, I have one of those faces my entire life. People are like, hey, don't I know you from somewhere? Oh, are you related to this person? Like, literally, I look like whoever they want me to look like, but never me. So I then could be the secret identity of other as well. <laughs> But now it's time to get down to the details here. That's right. We're going to get into the meat of this issue with our table of contents. So Rich's Wizard Issue 60 with an August 1996 cover date was the fifth year anniversary bash issue featuring a Bart Sears cover of the Hulk punching through a wall of Wizard magazine covers from years gone by. And about the cover, Wizard said, our fifth anniversary issue to help celebrate the event, we over Size the issue and pursued two different cover possibilities, a more celebratory cover or an interesting Captain Marvel-themed gatefold cover pitched to us by Alex Ross. Ross positioned Marvel Comics, Miss Marvel, Captain Marvel, and Marvel Boy opposite DC Comics, Mary Marvel, Captain Marvel, and Captain Marvel Jr. After dwelling on it, we went with this in-your-face Hulk cover instead, featuring the Jade Giant smashing through the wall of old wizard covers. We felt it was an image more in tune with our celebratory event. The Ross cover was delayed for a later issue that sadly didn't materialize, and it never made it past the initial sketch phase. Wow, we are going to post this to social media, because this is amazing. Can you, I mean, that, that's just definitely a piece of lost art. If they had gotten Alex Ross to do that just at any point, that would have been a big hit. You'd think, yeah. Despite the celebration, though, uh, the packed-in items with Wizard 60 are kind of disappointing, because there was a Wizard Spawn Chrome card and an Independence Day movie trading card, but I don't know. It feels like they could have done a little bit more. You'd, you'd think maybe like a swatch of cloth from one of Garib Sheamus's shirts or something, you know? Maybe that sweater he's wearing with all the billiard balls on it on the, uh, the, the first page. <laughs> yeah. Now, inside the issue, there was also an offer, you know, a mail-away coupon for Lady Death the Crucible half. They'd already done a Lady Death half previously. This was her new upcoming miniseries. And so we have that in the archives, but there was also an alternate cover. You know, there was a variant of this, which was a white canvas sketch cover. So it's got like, a, you know, a canvas texture to it. And then it looks like somebody drew it out in pencil. It's obviously been mass produced, but it's got that look to it. I saw this in a comic book store like two years ago, just as we were getting the podcast started, and I didn't pick it up. And then I was I was out of town. It was where my mom lives. So my, for my birthday, I was like, hey, why don't you go buy me that comic that I wanted? I called the comic store. They're like, oh, we already sold it. I was like, man. And so I finally found it for less than what I would have paid at that store. So I was excited. We do have both versions that we'll be sharing on social media so you can see that. But I just, I, there are these variant, you know, Sometimes they're like a gold edition, half comics. I assume they went right to the retailers, but if they packed them in at random for certain people that ordered them, that would be a pretty fun little premium to get as well. Yeah, I have no idea. I know that like one of the earliest Deadpool appearances, I think, was from one of these like Wizard Half issues. It's crazy what some of them are worth when you think about what the circulation this magazine had was, too. Like You'd think they would have had countless copies in circulation, but... Well, according to the Wizard staffers we've talked to, they had plenty of them in the warehouse. Yeah. <laughs> I actually put a question out 
out to our social media followers the other day, you know, just how many of you ordered the Wizard Half issues. And really, like, a lot of people said it was kind of just difficult because you were young. They're like, I didn't have a checking account, so I would have to have my mom get a money order to get, you know, the thing in the mail to me. So like, maybe that was a little bit prohibitive to some of the readers that weren't quite uh, financially independent yet. I mean, I know I personally never ordered a half issue. It just didn't occur to me. I was like, oh, that's a cool thing that exists, but I don't need it that bad. Uh, but before we move on here, Riches, I do want to ask, because you specifically asked to be the guest on this episode. You know, we kind of went back and forth. We could do this or we could do this one. And you chose issue 60. So why was that? I, I think it's it kind of circles back to some of the stuff we, we talked about in the intro. You know, when we had talked about me coming on and I started skimming through some of the, the close upcoming issues, I just felt like this one had a lot of things in it that really clicked for me. Uh, and obviously we're going to get into some of them, but like the spawn animation, the upcoming toy biz figures, the article about how the issue of Wizard is made. Like, And I, I just felt like if I waited too much longer to come on, I wouldn't have as much to say because outside of some indie stuff, honestly, my late 90s interest in the books by the big two is just really minimal. So I feel like this just seemed like the prime time to jump on. Like, it's a really packed issue, and it's it's so all over the place, which kind of sums up my fandom and my career. So it, it just felt like a good fit, you know? Uh- <laughs> Makes sense to me. Uh, now, getting into our cover story here, speaking of animation, Green Day, which is a very 90s article title, is a behind-the-scenes look at Marvel's The Incredible Hulk animated series, which we discussed a bit last issue as well. Responding to the question of whether or not this is a grim and gritty Hulk, story editor Greg Johnson responds, quote, that's such an overused term. To me, there's only one show that's ever really made it. Batman? Maybe Gargoyles. But that is the attempt here. So they did want to make it grim and gritty, apparently. Uh, The Hulk's adventures will take Bruce Banner on a cross-country trip to find a cure for his condition, where old Jade Jaws will meet up with Marvel heroes like Iron Man, Ghost Rider, Thor, The Thing, and his cousin She-Hulk. It's also mentioned that the Ghost Rider episode is meant to be a backdoor pilot for that character's own animated series, but of course that doesn't happen. Uh, However, this version of the Hulk debuted in a very similar way as that as part of an episode of Iron Man before that show was cancelled, so Marvel Animation really did want to create a shared universe. This is long before the MCU. I just find that kind of fascinating. But, Riches, I have to assume that animation was a big influence on your career. Do you have any specific memories of this show or just was animation something that got you thinking about your ability to draw and create? Uh, well, animation, as far as my career, huge. I've spent the majority of my life in Florida. And as a kid, Disney used to actively produce animation in Orlando. And I, I took that tour so many times, I couldn't even tell you. So there is, there's really a decent period in my, my young artistic life prior to going to art school when I really thought I might pursue animation as a career. But much like how I felt about that, we'll call it glossy period of late 90s comics, I think computer-assisted and, and computer-generated animation just didn't really resonate with me in the same way. And so that's when I kind of deviated, but I still have such a huge love for cell-drawn animation. I still collect animation cells. And as far as this Hulk series, I mean, I I definitely remember it being on, but I I think I just loved X-Men, the animated series, and the Spider-Man animated series so much. And I felt like, I don't know why, but maybe it's just like the way I felt about the characters or something, but the Iron Man and Hulk series always felt sort of substandard compared to X-Men and Spider-Man to me. Like, I don't know if the animation wasn't as good or if like, I don't know if the music wasn't as good. I don't know what it was, but something about them just never, never clicked on this. Even like the toys, I felt like the marketing surrounding them, just like they felt sort of second tier. So maybe I really, I don't, do we know? Are they on Disney Plus now? I might, I might need to, uh, 
revisit and see if my opinion has changed. Oh yeah, Hulk and Iron Man, those, both those series are on Disney Plus, and I checked in with them, uh, you know, a little while back, and I did enjoy them. So worth uh, revisiting. I will just say the Hulk series for me. You know, you talked about like you were more X Men, more Spider Man. Hulk, I think I watched that a little bit more. Like I watched the first season of X Men, I watched like two and a half seasons of Spider Man. But something about Hulk really spoke to me because it was very serialized. Like each episode did feel like it was part of a continuity, but not the way Spider Man did it, where it was like cliffhangers and stuff. It was just like, up oh, here's the next adventure, but here's a little reference to stuff that had happened previously. And so I appreciated that type of storytelling, and it was a little bit more dramatic. And plus the She Hulk character, She Hulk has just always been one of my favorite characters, especially you know John Burns' humorous take. But the humor that they injected into her, because she was so like, hey there, big boy. Like I mean, not so direct that way, but she was very May West in her sultry nature of everything. So anyway, I got I got a kick out of that show a lot, just uh, when her character became more prominent. I think that's something that always really connected about those shows for me is that so much of the animation from my childhood from that era all felt very like one and done disposable and I felt like the Marvel shows specifically really felt like an investment like if you missed part four of the Phoenix Saga you were lost that's something I could really appreciate because I feel like especially when when everybody was aiming for syndication rights back then like you wouldn't think that they would have put such an emphasis on on long-term storytelling like that like you'd think they would just try to churn out episodic so that is a really cool thing I, maybe i deserve to give this this series a, a second look i don't, I don't want to sound like i'm just you know closed off to this it's just one of those things you know it's like you can only absorb so much pop culture and it just you know churns out but like in fact i didn't even know until reading this article that mark hamill was the voice of gargoyle so you learn something new every day yeah i mean an all-star cast you know like neil mcdonough and matt Brewer and lou ferrigno back as the hulk so it was pretty good but uh speaking of things that maybe we didn't give enough attention to in the 90s the next piece here is called Teen Spirit. Once again, focus on that 90s music for their titles, but it is an interview with Dan Jurgens about his new take on the Teen Titans with an entirely new roster of young heroes. So we'll kind of break that down here. First up is Risk, a young man whose abilities are enhanced by five, which means five times the speed, five times the strength. So kind of a niche. I don't know where the risk factors into that. Uh, Argent is a girl from a rich family who creates plasma bolts that become can become instantly tangible. Slag, a young man with heat powers and prism who can capture and reflect light, fire light beams, and travels at the speed of light. She also mixes up a great picture of crystal light. <laughs> anyway, also on the team is the recently de-aged Ray Palmer, aka the Atom. Jurgens explains, quote, he appears to be 17, even though he's really in his mid-30s and has been married and divorced. Yeah, I'm... something about that concept it's just a little creepy that doesn't quite sit right all these years later you know i mean if i could dh for my mid-30s i wouldn't say no at this point you know it's a- <laughs> age. No, I'm, I'm getting better looking every day. Yeah, that's what the mirror tells me. Ugh. Anyway, uh, the other piece of the puzzle here, though, adding a little bit of extra pizzazz to the book at a higher profile is former new Teen Titans artist, the late George Perez, who was also inking the book. So just a little bonus there for longtime Titans fans. So I have to ask you, Riches, did you have a favorite teen team book? You know, was it the Titans? Was it somebody else where you felt like I can relate to these characters because that always seemed to be the reason that the publishers are putting out books like this. 
Um, well, it, it definitely wasn't Teen Titans. I'm, uh, I'm kind of embarrassed to say, but I don't know if I've ever really read any Teen Titans in my life. However, uh, I, I do uh, own and have read literally just about every single appearance of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles ever in print. So uh, if, if that counts as a teen book, we'll, we'll definitely go with that. Although I don't know how much I, I related their uh, their teenage turtle antics to my own. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that definitely counts, although it's kind of like outside the box in a way, even though it's right in your face. You know, it's like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They are teen they are a team and they are mutants with superpowers never thought about it that way personally i'm just happy you didn't say power pack oh I'm a big power pack guy <laughs> is anyone yeah i can't imagine who would be saying that but i think we might have a little bit more in common with this next fella yes this is an article called shoot to hurt and it is an interview with the creator of scud the disposable assassin rob schraub who has been getting a lot of ink in wizard in the past few issues he's the new golden boy uh but on the origins of this vending machine robot assassin, the creator reveals, quote, Scud is an allegory for trying to overcome my personal problems. The return to this childhood love of comics, he said, came after Schraub was rejected by a potential girlfriend, quote, I was gaga over her, and she thought I was a psychotic stalker. <laughs> I mean, we're all familiar with that story, right? Restraining orders, just part of the dating process. Uh, <clears throat> oh, but I was completely shattered. I didn't want to cry anymore. I wanted someone who would laugh in the face of danger, so I came up with a comic book for me. As for how he designed the unique yellow robot, Schraub doesn't have much of a story behind that. It says, quote, I think I drew one picture, and that's how he ended up. So though Schraub says he originally planned to turn Scud into an animated short, he soon realized, quote, I didn't have the people, time, or money to do even a five-minute piece, so I figured I'd do it as a comic book, but storyboard it so I could take the pages and animate them. So to date, this has not happened, even though at this time, Schraub had a development deal with Oliver Stone's production company, and his writing partner, Dan Harmon, has gone on to create some very popular TV shows. It just feels like somebody could have pulled the string. Somebody could have gotten this through. Especially on one of the streaming services by now, you know? They're always desperate for content. Uh, yeah. But before I get into that, you know, as you as you're reading that, all I could think about was, do you think Rob was one of the people that wrote a letter to Paula at the beginning of this? <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, you know, I definitely had some love for Scud. I think Scud was one of those characters where I almost remembered the character visually like more than the comic he originated from. Like it was just one of those things where it's like he seemingly came out of nowhere and he was everywhere all of a sudden. I, I remember thinking that his bullseye logo kind of reminded me of Tide Laundry Detergent. Wow, you're right. Never thought of that. And I definitely remember the, the video game. I remember the action figure. So, like, I really responded to the visuals of it. But, I mean, it was years before I think I actually realized that this was based on a comic. And, and that's kind of like what I was saying earlier about how, like, I think I would, quote unquote, read Wizard as a kid. And, like, I would see the images and be like, awesome, very awesome. I'll buy that toy. I'll buy that video game. But, like, I think sometimes... Especially, like, if you didn't have a local comic shop and you were just getting stuff, like, off a spinner rack or pharmacy grocery store or whatever, like, anything other than, like, the absolute, like, top-tier A-list Marvel DC stuff, you wouldn't have had any way of getting. So I think maybe it's just one of those things that, like, as a comic didn't cross my path right away. But, yeah, I have a, a lot of love for it. Um, I think especially because something that I've always sort of personally struggled with as an artist is really getting loose. Like, I can... You know, it, when I'm, like, napkin doodling at dinner or something, like, I'll just draw whatever and I feel fine about it. But, like, when it comes to work that's that's going out into the world, like, I, I feel this, like, enormous weight of responsibility to be, like, every line has to be so precise, everything has to be so rendered and meticulous. And 
I think what I love about Scud is that it just looks so loose. It just looks so like dynamic. Like it's uh, almost every panel looks like it's jumping off the page. And I think that's just, it's so fun and it's so different from everything else that was out at the time. Yeah, I think you're right on that availability thing because they always made sure they included like the address for Fireman Press where you could order them direct from Rob Schraub basically because not every store was carrying it. Yeah, and just in general, like you were saying, it was so unique. It's so special. Just if somebody could even just do, you know, a short on Cartoon Network, you know, online or something type of thing, I think that would go over really big. I'm really surprised that I, I guess maybe the timeline's a little bit off, but I feel like this would have lent itself so well to MTV's liquid television. Like this could have fit in so beautifully alongside like the Max and Eon Flux. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And it, especially if they could have really like just gone crazy with the violence and stuff, which they probably could have at the time, you know, but yeah, it, it, I definitely, it, I think it's very much waiting to be animated. This is the kind of thing that I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest to see it have a huge resurgence one day. Yeah, someday soon, please. All right, well, next up here, business plan is a look at the Heroes Reborn sketchbooks of Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld as they prepare to revamp Marvel mainstays like Captain America, the Fantastic Four. Jim Lee explains that the two artists would actually be sketching while taking meetings with Marvel and then discuss their ideas and show off their drawings after, you know, the suits left the room. So there's a lot of just interesting concepts sketches here and so riches i have to ask as an artist do you respond more to jim lee or rob liefeld or do you have a favorite redesign that is presented here by either one huh i mean that's that's a really tough one to answer i mean i guess depending on at what point in my life i'm asked that question that that can really go back and forth i think at this time i probably would have said rob and now obviously i think i'd probably say jim but well, to be specific, the gym of this era, yeah, but because um, DC gym and Marvel gym are almost like two different people to me. But um, yeah, I uh, I responded huge to both of them, though. I mean, I was the, just the biggest Image Comics dork ever you could imagine. Early era Image. Uh, and as far as these designs go, I mean, it's funny when you look at them. Like when I look at like Falcon, I'm like, oh, that's Chapel in a different outfit. You know, like <laughs> yeah, I totally. feel like there's so much like there's so much derivative of of themselves and in, in the Im- in their early image books, and then they just kind of like redress their own redressings for this. So, um, <laughs> uh, I think that Bucky is maybe who I respond to most out of these, just because it it feels like the biggest departure. And you know, if, if you're gonna have a redesign, why not go wild with it? But you know, all of this stuff does speak to me, really. It just, uh, I really like the uh, the Reed Richards costume redesign there. The the swordsman costume's really cool. I feel like that could easily be a G.I. Joe figure now. Uh, yeah, but speaking of just reusing designs, when I look at the swordsman sketch here, uh, basically he looks like Kane, you know, like the new Weapon X who was fighting Deadpool on the cover of X-Force, you know, like that guy, he got his own action figure. It's almost exactly like the same jacket, the same look and everything. So again, just reuse of old ideas. Yeah, yeah I mean... Honestly, like, the, you know, I think that the, the the formula for this stuff was they had like five things and those things worked so well that they were just able to repurpose them and reconfigure them, you know, a million times. But like, I think if you were of a certain generation and I very much am like you just responded so much to that stuff that they, they were able to, you know, reuse the same trick a hundred times and it kept working every time. I'm not ashamed to say that if they put out stuff that looked like this right now, I'd probably still be into it as long as the coloring was, you know, period authentic. So I don't know. I think it kicks all kinds of ass personally. I know that's like there's probably people that are like this guy has the worst taste ever but like I don't know man maybe you just had to be there like (laughs) 
Yeah, well, I mean, to each his own. It wasn't for me then, and it's not for me now. Like, I just, I didn't pick up those books. I mean, definitely not Rob's stuff. A little bit of Jim's stuff, but even that didn't last very long. And as I look here, like, it's definitely, yeah, for me also the... The Bucky redesign is the one that just stands out the most, but then at the same time, I'm just like, oh, well, it's just the Carrie Kelly Robin from Dark Knight Returns. Oh, for sure, yeah. <laughs> right? And, and so, like, for me, I, I don't even think I had read Dark Knight Returns at this point, but just from Exposure and Wizard and other people's comic collections, I was like, oh, a female Robin, a female Bucky. I get it. The question that always lingers in my mind when I look at stuff like this is I'm just like, how was it not Lawsuit City? I mean, it's so obvious to anyone with eyes. Like, <laughs> Well, it's just, it's just an echo, just yeah, like echo, Rob that's... loves to always say. Everything is an echo. It's, it's built into the business. It's what we do. But maybe an echo from the past for these two former X-Book artists. Uh, this next piece here, the Wizard Q&A with Bob Harris, their old boss, is mainly filled with the interviewer Tom Russo trying to get a rise out of the new Marvel head honcho by citing all the fan criticism and dissatisfaction with Spider-Man's clone saga, because of course Wizard had a bias there, and uh, also about Mark Wade leaving Captain America over the Heroes Reborn deal. He just kind of keeps jabbing at those things. But a Adjusting well to his spot as the number one cheerleader of the House of Ideas, Harris responds, quote, My reaction to the reaction is that it just shows that people out there really care about these characters. So yeah, just very much towing the company line there, but uh, doing it really well. So, Riches, as you were reading through this article, was there something that stood out to you? Was there a revelation about the behind the scenes at Marvel at this time? Uh, not particularly, other than the things you mentioned. I mean, the, the spot about Rob calling Mark and offering him to write Captain America and him turning him down, I thought was pretty amusing. But, uh, you know, I, I think this is very much a... It tells me that, that Bob is a really good corporate PR guy. You know, that's why he has this job. He's uh, He knows how to show for the House of Ideas. I, I didn't really feel like there was all that much to glean from it. I mean, I, I think if you look at the state of Marvel overall at this period, like, you know, the boat's filling with water, and I think he's doing his best to kind of make that sound as good as it can. Uh, like... I, I feel like even the whole concept of Heroes Reborn really, in so many ways, feels like a, them sort of waving the white flag and admitting that, you know, Image had their number and they're trying to do anything they can to kind of recapture some of that early 90s magic. But of course, you know, Bob's not going to say that in this article. So, <laughs> he's, uh, you know. so I think he does a good job of trying to navigate what's sort of a, a difficult situation being in the position he's in. Yeah, basically just like a hype piece with not a whole lot of hype. Uh, now, I will say that, you know, the large portion of the rest of the issue, speaking of kind of filler, maybe, is uh, taken up by something called the Fab Five, which is a very in-depth retrospective on the biggest comic book events of the last five years. It's actually a great reference tool, but it is something that we have been covering on every episode of the show. So it really doesn't make sense for us to go through and break that down. But if you just want like a recap of the first part of the 90s, what was going on in the comic book? industry it's a great piece yeah not, not a whole lot to cover for for listeners of this podcast but i will say it, it is a really good article i think wizard sometimes can be guilty of feeling like an advertisement and or very uh preferential to their their friends but i think it's a very fair article and it really does cover a lot of good stuff so if, if you just find a random issue of Wizard in the Dollar Bin, this is a good one to get if you just want to kind of get a, a quick summary of the last five years of Wizard. But there's also a list like the top 100 comics you've got to own, but it's all titles you would expect, like the Dark Knight Returns we talked about and like just seminal storylines where it's just like, okay, 
Yeah, I, I would say, if anything, it would have been a good investment tool to if you'd actually bought all those books at the time this came out. I mean, now they could title the article, uh, you know, the, the top 100 comics you can't afford. But yeah. <laughs> Get out that checkbook. Uh, but there's also an article called The Heat is On, which is highlighting, like, the big storylines that are coming up in the summer of 1996. Again, that's something we will get to on the show uh, in future episodes here. There is something, however, as we jump over all that content that we do have time for, a little bit of fun looking into the future. It's called 2001 A Comics Odyssey. Dun, 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 dun. I can't let you do that, Garib. <laughs> now, this is really fun. The wizard staff is predicting the biggest potential stories to come in the next five years of comic book history. So we're going to see how well the crystal ball was working over there in Congress, New York. Yeah, I, I really love this article. This is so fun. Then why don't you tell us about their first prediction? So number one, Todd McFarlane will draw Spider-Man again. And that is a big no. He does not. <laughs> no, definitely stuck to his guns. But what did you think about their thought process of this, the pieces they were putting together that would lead to that event? Oh, I mean, I think it's a very valid line of thinking in 1996, because Image at this point has only existed for all of close to four years, and you've already seen nearly every one of the Image founders backslide, except Todd. So naturally, you would think, you know, well, why wouldn't he? Everyone else is, right? Todd, Todd is apparently a man of real conviction. The only, the only one time that he's ever slid on that uh, was actually, I think, on is it last year's Overstreet Price Guy. He did a cover that has Spawn and Spider-Man together. And I think that is literally the only time in print in 30 years that he's drawn Spider-Man, which and that's not even really for Marvel. So wild to think about. In fact, I think the only Marvel thing he's done at all was the 9-11 uh, tribute book. He did a piece with Joe Casada, but not not to go on like the Todd Spider-Man tangent, because I could be here all night. I'm a real Todd fanboy, as you couldn't tell. <laughs> but the thing that's really fascinating about that to me is I really believe that as an ambassador for comics in lieu of Stan Lee, Todd really sort of, and I mean this with all the most love and respect in the world, it really has the most, like, carnival barker attitude. Oh, yeah, ever the pitch man. You know, he very much is, like, embodies that same sort of, you know, everybody's uncle spirit that Stan had. I really thought that Todd would have been, like, you know, the greatest person ever to be heading up Marvel, just from, an, you know, from a PR standpoint. But uh, now he's uh, he's somehow managed to not go back to Spider-Man, which is almost mind-blowing, honestly. I, I'm sure that, you know, the reason they put that one first in the article is because it probably seemed like the most sure thing. I mean, what could have been, right? Uh, we'll never know. But the next one here, Image Comics as we know it will be no more. Kind of piggybacking on the Todd prediction. Real quick, before I get into their actual theory, uh, there is a picture here. It's like a framed photo of the image founders all together, but the glass is all smashed and in shards. And there is one person there who is not supposed to be there, who doesn't count as an image founder, and that is Hank Canals. He was Rob Liefeld's buddy who helped him write the first issue of Youngblood and all of that. But it, it is weird because uh, this is a scenario where Will Sportacio was not there at this particular event where they took the picture. But I have a wizard staffer who contacted me a year or so ago. And he's like, hey, I know you have all the issues. Can you go back and find the issue where they actually photo photoshopped Will Sportacio on top of Hank Canals, so I had to like go through all the different issues and find that one. I'm pretty sure it's the issue where they're celebrating Image's 10th anniversary. But yeah, he just said it was kind of a funny thing behind the scenes to them, kind of an inside joke that Wizard would have the balls to actually say, yes, we need to rewrite history 
country and put Will Sportacio in that picture, even though he wasn't there for that event. Yeah, you know, I didn't realize that was in a, a wizard that they did that. I know in Todd's art book, The Devil You Know, that they've photoshopped Will's face over Hank and that. And I was like, man, I can't believe they would do this. But apparently, maybe maybe that actually originated from Wizard, and he just took the picture from them. Oh, that's interesting. That actually might be the history of it, one way or the other, right? Either Todd requested it, Wizard used it, or Wizard had it and let Todd use it. So, huh. As far as their theory about what was going on here uh, with the image founders breaking apart is basically kind of what happened. At this point, like, Mark Silvestri is breaking away. Top Cow is going to be its own thing. Rob Liefeld's already doing Maximum Press. Jim Lee is starting homage comics. This all comes out in the next issue. But, like, literally everybody's doing their own thing, and the core becomes Eric Larson, Todd McFarland, Jim Valentino. And that's really what they're predicting in this section here. And they talk about, like, bringing on new talent, changing the focus of what Image is. And again, that's what they did. They kept bringing on newer and newer talent that could have their own creator own book. So, yeah, Wizard called that one perfectly. I almost feel like with this one, they were so tight with the Image guys that this wasn't so much a prediction as a, hey, we already know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, obviously, this this one, they, they pretty much nailed it. Um, although... I, I will say I'm I'm quite happy as as both someone in the industry and a fan that the image does continue to exist. So much good has come out of it, and it's it's provided a, an option for so many creators that otherwise you know might not have ever you know. There's so many things we might not even be aware of today. The, the Walking Dead, for example, may not exist without it. So yeah, I mean they definitely found their footing and proved it wasn't about just the original founders. But uh, what's the next prediction here? A cable network devoted to comic books. So this one is interesting. They uh, they basically are saying that with only 57 channels on TV uh, and, and you know, that growing rapidly and 24-hour news and sports and entertainment and kids' channels and movie channels, cooking channel, golf channel, why not a comic book channel? And that doesn't happen exactly, but, like, it's a pretty cool idea. And uh, I, I feel like Marvel Studios is certainly uh, trying to help make that a reality at the rate they're churning out content. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it, Disney Plus is the Marvel channel, HBO Max is the DC channel, then you have other properties spread around on Amazon Prime and whatever else. But yeah, it's interesting. I think uh, what it comes down to, though, is a lot of times when you're in the fandom, right, you assume that there is a greater demand, that there is a bigger audience, especially at this time. It's like, well, comic books were a big deal, fine years ago, you know, but it's like now it's 1996 and the fervor has kind of died down, not selling as many. You know, the, the different publishers are kind of just grasping at whatever they can do to stay relevant. So it would have been interesting, but also probably just all the rights issues that have sold off to this group and this group. It would have been probably a nightmare to try to put together. Funny, though, like I remember even as a kid, like seeing reruns of like the old Spider-Man what amazing friends or it was called there's so many so many of those older like 60s and 70s era like you know for Ignos Hulk all this stuff that like I was seeing in reruns and like honestly if they had coupled all that stuff with like you know Dolph Lundgren Punisher and stuff like I don't know that they had enough to sustain a 24-7 channel but like at that age at that time like I mean I certainly would have been into it I could have seen like sci-fi channel doing like 24-hour marathons or something I mean well, and Sci-Fi Channel was the closest thing we had because they were doing marathons of like Wonder Woman and the 70s Spider-Man TV series and Hulk and all that kind of stuff and having Stan Lee do interstitials. We're going to talk a little bit about some more sci-fi programming in a bit. But yeah, just to get a 24-hour superhero cable channel could have been interesting. Now, the next one here says American artists will be studying the work of Masamune Shiro, but... 
that is something that already happened just in the previous issue or the one before. Like they were interviewing, you know, J. Scott Campbell and Joe Manorera. They were just saying like, what are your favorite manga influenced things? How have they affected your art style? They're like, yeah, Masamune Shiro. He's the guy. I love Appleseed. I love whatever, you know? So that was already happening. I don't know that that is really a prediction. They're just like, yeah, this is the future, but it's not like a big revelation. It's like, no, it's very clearly a thing. Yep. <laughs> I mean, maybe this was uh, written months earlier and they were compiling it or something for the fifth year anniversary issue. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're spot on with that. I, it was it was so in the water. I mean, like, it, I think the anime influence on our culture at this point was already so obvious everywhere. It wasn't like it was on the cusp of coming. It had already well arrived by this point. I mean, it wouldn't be long before Wizard was producing Anime Invasion, Anime Insider magazine. So, yeah, definitely. All right. Up next, we've got You Will See Chains of Marvel Entertainment Stores. This one really pops me because the first line of this is walk right past the Disney store in your local mall and head to the Marvel Entertainment entertainment store i'm like yeah they're uh, they're one and the same now <laughs> yeah if you walk into a disney store of any of their surviving malls that may still exist you will see it's half marvel product and it's kind of crazy and this really hit me as well because i remember how magical the disney store was at my local mall like i didn't even want to buy anything there i wasn't a huge disney fan but going in and seeing like the fully sculpted like life-size characters that were attached on the walls like in these action poses and the same at the warner brothers studio store i loved going there they had full-size justice league characters all posed together like that was just an amazing experience to me so if marvel had been able to accomplish that whoa yeah, the, the closest that I ever remember having to this, like at this time, I want to say it was maybe late 1993. I might be off slightly, but Universal Studios, at least in Florida, maybe California too, did a thing with Marvel and they had like a live action character stunt show. It was just like a, a brief thing. And my mom took me to that because obviously I was, you know, totally Marvel superhero obsessed at the time. And they had like a like a pop-up shop, you know, a little souvenir gift store thing there that had, you know, toy biz figures and comics and stuff, which in all honesty probably wasn't all that much different than what you would have found at any good comic store. But I think just the fact that it was a standalone, like Marvel-specific store as a kid, like, blew my mind. And so that was sort of my little, like, tiny glimpse into what an actual Marvel store would have looked like. And, you know, I, I feel like there's so much Marvel merchandise now that it's it's like... If you can't get away from it. I mean, if, if you go to a toy store or a toy store now or a toy aisle, I guess you should say, we don't really have toy stores. Um, you know, they're, they're, everything is Marvel in some degree. So like, you know, that that's kind of the whole state of the world now, not just a store, but at that time, I mean, this would have been the coolest thing ever if you were a young fan. Like the thought of it is, is perfect. I certainly get where they were coming from. Yeah, it did just feel like DC was maybe one step ahead of them still, like coasting off of the popularity of Batman, which actually speaks to the next prediction here. Really interestingly, Wizard says, Move over, X-Men and Spawn. Superman will flex his muscles as the next media juggernaut. So they're stating the facts, you know, like Lois and Clark is a huge hit on ABC. You have, you know, the WB has the Superman animated series. Talking about a fifth Superman film being in the works at some point. Of course, we know that there was a whole Tim Burton, Nicolas Cage thing that comes about a few years later in development, but never occurs. And so I think, you know, it was a nice idea that Superman could return to probably like he had in the late 70s and early 80s, but I still just don't think that the juice was there for that character in this era. You know, I, I do wonder, though, it's one of those, like, what-if things. I absolutely adore that documentary, uh, The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened, about the Nicolas Cage ill-fated movie. And, you know, when you when you look at the 
unbelievable marketing that they did for movies like Batman Returns and Batman Forever, where it was just absolutely everywhere. It's, you know, clothes, toys, every piece of ephemera imaginable. Obviously, you and I, uh, I, I think we've realized have a lot of love for the McDonald's promotion. Oh, yeah. I have to wonder if something like that had happened for Superman off the back of that film, would that have caused a huge resurgence, you know? Like, I mean, the death of Superman got so much media attention. I, you wonder, like, they had, they were riding a wave. Like, I feel like if they had timed it right, that movie might have turned the tide and, you know, maybe the DCU would be this huge thing now off the back of that. But I, I guess, you know, we'll, we'll never really know. But I don't know. It looked promising to me in that documentary. I, I was ready to buy in. If, I, if that movie had come out in 97, I would have been there. Yeah, and I think it was just a timing thing. They were too late. If they had jumped on right after the success of the death of Superman, if you got Christopher Reeve back in the role, I think it had been enough time that people would have been excited about that. But again, that's just my theory. Take us into the next one here, Riches. Alright, so up next we've got a rating system will be implemented in comics. So this is basically talking about how at the time they had this V-chip parental control on TV and that they were going to try and, you know, the video games rating system was happening and, you know, they were going to basically try and do the same thing to comics. And I think they specifically say when you bring your preacher to the cash register, prepare to be carded. Um, funny enough, I feel like kind of the complete opposite happened. Instead, we did away with the comics code authority and it's a free for all. Um, <laughs> You know, honestly, I feel like it wouldn't have been the worst thing if it had, because, I mean, when I was a teenager, if there's a parental advisory on it, that CD just became 10 times more appealing. I mean, that was like the, the, the tipper gore backwards, you know, <laughs> the <laughs> reverse psychology. I, mean, like, I think if they had put, like, you know, MA on the comic covers, that stuff would have been flying, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you're right, and I think some of the publishers, much like the Comics Code Authority, just did it preemptively, because, like, for Marvel Knights, I know, for example, they would put, like, violent, mature content, especially when Garth Ennis was writing things, you know, put that on the cover and let people know. Now, the next prediction here is that tomorrow's writers will not come from comics. So it says, in order for any comic book writer to survive and become successful, it's been proven that one must dig for gold in a different mine shaft. History tells us that the best comic book writers are pure writers who draw upon other forms of media. They just happen to use comics as their medium of expression. And they're referencing people like Neil Gaiman and Peter David, people who obviously, like, went on to write actual novels and things like that. Uh, but they also bring up the idea that, you know, big entertainment is using kind of the reverse, is saying, well, we'll make comics, but we'll take people, you know, with big names like Mickey Spillane, who had a, you know, a successful crime series years before, whatever, Tom Clancy, they were doing this new uh, project with him. For example, people like Brad Meltzer, who was like, you know, on the bestseller list of the New York Times, now he's coming in and writing Justice League mystery stories, you know, with identity crisis and stuff like that. It was certainly the case. So uh, good on you, wizard. Yeah, I think they nailed it on this one. And, and you know, I'm allowed to say this as an artist because I know none of, my, none of my writer friends would ever say it. But I, I think that you will hear so many writers when you're, uh, you know, out at a con dinner or something sort of lamenting the fact that the most F-list celebrity can walk into Marvel and DC and they'll bend over backwards for them. But you could be, you know, a, a, the greatest comic scribe for 20 years and they would always take the TV writer or the movie writer over you. So, yeah, I think they totally nailed it on this one. Um, but, you know, that said... In fairness to those writers, first of all, if anyone had the opportunity, they'd take it. So, you know, no shade there. And also, 
I mean, a lot of these people, like like Kevin Smith, for example, I think a lot of them got inspired to become writers from reading comic books. So in a way, it was just sort of a you know a, a backdoor way of getting into comics, which I think they probably would have done at some point anyway if their career had taken a different trajectory to get them there. So yeah, it seems like if they were seeking to be legitimate in their field of writing or filmmaking or whatever, they probably would not start out in comic books and pursue it that way. But now that they've established themselves, they can kind of reverse engineer their career in comic books, definitely. Yeah, and I think that that for me is really the big difference between the ones that I'm more accepting of as a fan and the ones that I am not. You know, like, you, I mean, I've seen situations like, I know J.J. Abrams did a Spider-Man book with his son and, like, I have no idea what his level of fandom is. I don't know if that was just like a backdoor way to get his son into Spider-Man, whatever. But, I'm, you know, like I said, no shade. I mean, I, if my uh, if my dad could have walked me into writing Spider-Man as my first comics gig, you can damn well bet I would have done the same thing. But, you know, like, obviously, like I said, for other people, like Kevin Smith or something, like, I mean, the guy's geek cred is off the charts. So, like, anyone that is mad at somebody like that for getting that opportunity or Brad Meltzer or whatever, like, they're just jealous because, like, you know, I, I think they've all done really great work. So, but yeah, Wizard nailed it on this one. All right. Well, we have our last prediction here. I think it's going to hit home for you. Yeah, the nail biter. Uh, the traditional artist will become obsolete. Ah, computers. Um, well, so this article is in 1986, and this is a five-year prediction. So they're not entirely right. They're not entirely wrong. I mean, I don't know. This is this is a kind of a, a loaded one to really unwrap because if the implication is that a computer is going to 100% replace an artist, I, I think you know you're seeing. <laughs> This is probably really going to date this episode when I say this, but there's this thing that's extremely popular on social media like this week that no one will remember next month called Dolly Mini, where you type in like a phrase and it, you know, does AI generated art. And I think that that's what everyone's fear has always been. It's like, you'll just write in like, you know, draw a comic page that looks like Rob Liefeld and it'll just, you know, spit out a page of Heroes Reborn for you. Like, I don't think that's ever happening. As far as like, did digital coloring and digital lettering forever change the industry? Like, yeah, of course it did. But well, and the thing is that I've learned recently, you know, I'm sure you use these tools, but, uh, you know, I was watching the Marvel 616 documentary series on Disney Plus and they were showing like, you know, the current Marvel artists, how they are drawing, and they're still drawing by hand, they're just doing it on a tablet instead of a piece of paper. And so that seems to be the main difference where it's like same skill set, just a different toolbox. Yeah, I think that's a big misconception to, to like the layman is that, you know, they the, like I've, I can't tell you how many conventions where I've got the like, did you draw this? Yeah, shut up. Like, uh, what? Yes, I did. Yeah. No, yeah. But did you draw it by hand or a computer? I'm like, what do you mean? Like, they're wanting the same, you know, like the computer didn't draw it for me. Like, I think it's a tool like anything else. And I think that it's to, to some extent, it's always going to be you know, in, in the operator's hands. I mean, I think in, in the, to the most competent artist, if you hand them a stick in mud, they'd paint something better than, you know, somebody that can't draw. Like, so I, I think, you know, computers like anything else are a tool. And of course it's, things have evolved and changed. I mean, I do think that computers have taken away a little bit of personality in some areas. Like, I think that lettering looks more homogenized now maybe than it did 20 years ago. But as far as the effect it's had on art, I mean, if anything, I feel like in some ways it's actually caused people to really step their game up because it's it's allowed for things that they wouldn't have had time to do before, like mirroring things or being like, oh, I, I should move that a little in the frame or whatever. And so 
I think it's bred a generation of perfectionists and people that are zooming in way too close and, you know, going down to every pixel and, you know, like, it's probably driven some of us mad. So there you go, folks. You heard it from the horse's mouth. Same creative impulse, just uh, on a digital screen these days. But uh, that's where you're consuming all your media anyway, right? And speaking of media and, you know, digitally created images, yes, uh, that was certainly a concern in Hollywood, right? There's always that theory, oh, someday they're going to replace all our actors with artificial intelligence. This was definitely the dawn of CGI being used to create your favorite sci-fi and superhero characters on screen in Hollywood. So let's check out what was going on getting those comic book adaptations to you in theaters with Heroes in Motion. All right, our top story here is a little bit inflammatory, kind of wild. Batman Forever director Joel Schumacher speaks frankly about why Val Kilmer didn't return in costume for Batman and Robin, and he bluntly says, quote, Val got fired for being an asshole. <laughs> enough said <laughs> you know that, that one's a real shame to hear because i think val is was a really good bruce wayne honestly like i would have loved to have seen him in another movie but nah, you know in less controversial news we have some marvel movie follow-ups here as they're talking about venom captain america she hulk and long shot movies being in the works we get none of those in this century, at least. And uh, also, Generation X was officially not picked up by Fox for the network's primetime lineup. Although I will tell you, there is a follow-up that may contradict that uh, in the next issue. Also, the Nick Fury movie that is mentioned here is the one thing that does get made and riches. Do you know who starred in the Nick Fury TV movie on Fox? I do not. None other than Baywatch's own David Hasselhoff. Wow. <laughs> the Knight Rider himself. Man, I don't I don't remember that at all. That's funny. Speaking of not remembered and probably never seen, there is a Vampirella live action direct to cable movie coming to Showtime, which stars Talia Soto as the fanged femme fatale and Roger Daltrey from The Who as Vlad, aka Dracula. Now, this is interesting. They note that this is after Roger Daltrey just played a vampire character on Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. So he is like the vampire for lower tier comic book productions. <laughs> <laughs> Vampirella, for some reason, seems like something that definitely would have been made as a direct-to-cable film. Like, that one's really easy for me to picture. Some of the some of the others seem like, wow, what a reach. Like, Longshot and Generation X were 20 years into Marvel movies and still don't have those. But I, I can easily see how Vampirella got made at this time. Yeah, and frankly, I find it hard to believe that there wasn't just a trashy 70s grindhouse Vampirella movie made. You know, like something we would have eventually seen on Mystery Science Theater 3000. It just seems like in the 70s when she was hot, that would have been the time. I almost feel like that's a movie that's going to get made now to look like it's from the 70s. And it's going to be like an A24 horror movie or something. Yeah, like, somebody get Robert Rodriguez yeah, on the phone. Time. Yeah, the next little bit of business here is just the fact that Trent Canuga's Creed comic has been optioned by a development company to be turned into an animated series. Of course, this is not to be. It never happens. But I'm curious, uh, have you crossed paths with Trent Canuga ever? I've never crossed paths with him personally. I did really like his style at the time, though. I think, you know, it's something that it's like it's wild to me now with someone in my mid 30s. Like to, when I when I go back, like, in fact, I, I should circle back. Like I had a note that I, I put on this that like this is the fifth anniversary of Wizard. 
and Garib Sheamus is only 27 years old. Like, I think you really forget just how young some of these guys, like Liefeld was like 19 or something when he first started at Marvel. So like, Fred Kanuga was really young at this time. And I think that it's almost one of those things that if you showed me his work now, I, I couldn't exactly tell you what it is, but it feels very like fresh and it has like a youthful energy to me. It, it, it almost feels like it's, sometimes when you're a younger artist, I feel like you're you're almost a little more emboldened. Like you're not as... You haven't had the rules beaten into you so much where you're like, no, this has to be perfect perspective. This has to be perfect anatomy. Like, and I feel like a lot of that came through in his work. Like, I can't say I was ever like the hugest Creed fan in the world, but like, I definitely was familiar with him because he had a lot of crossover stuff at the time. I mean, like, specifically, I, I remember there was a crossover with Cyberfrog and a crossover with Ninja Turtles. So he was another one of those ones kind of like Scud, where it was just like, it was around, you know, like I, I was seeing it out in the ether. I knew what it was and I definitely liked his style. I never, like I said, never got super into it, but he was definitely one of those guys. I don't know if he was like on the, that like wizard friends list or whatever, but I feel like he got talked about a lot and I'd see his work a lot. So I, I would I definitely would have called myself a fan at the time. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wizard definitely uh, made us all aware of Creed and gave him a nice forum, uh, but somebody else that they gave a lot of attention to actually both of these guys, uh, uh, Kevin Smith it has his follow-up to Mall Rats called Chasing Amy, which is even heavier on the comic book industry connections if you have seen that film. Now, interestingly, though, this behind-the-scenes look at the movie comes from Mike Allred, the creator of Madman, who not only has a cameo in the film, but created comic art for the opening title sequence featuring Bluntman and Chronic. Of course, there actually are a lot of comic book artists who contribute to that. Uh, but he also serves specifically as a consultant for director Kevin Smith about what it is to be a comic book creator, how the conventions run, all those things. And it's interesting because it's even revealed that the art studio shared by the characters played by Ben Affleck and Jason Lee in the movie, it was modeled after Allred's own studio. So really, if you kind of look at it, there's a little bit of Mike Allred up there on the screen in addition to his cameo, but I'm assuming you had enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I mean, bigger mall rats, but definitely chasing Amy. And I think it's it's something I've only come to appreciate more as time goes on, and especially once I started working in comics. And even more so when I became friends with Jimmy Palmiotti and realized that him and Joe were in the movie. But yeah, I, I feel like this is such a... It's like we were saying about like when Kevin eventually starts writing comics. It's like anyone that could have a bad word to say about it. I mean, I feel like this guy basically made this movie as his like you know pilot to get work in comics. Like, I mean, he's such a massive comics fan, and it, it's it's so apparent because yeah, you you do see there's a lot of movies that that reference comics or that have a comic store as a backdrop or something, and like or even like like Big Bang Theory or something where like they, they always feel like a little inauthentic to me. It's like, I, I was listening to a prior episode you've done, like, you were talking about, like, the nerd with the tape on the glasses, where it's like, is there ever really a nerd that looks like that, you know? Like, it's like the stereotypical thing. Like, I feel like there's so much of that when it comes to comics and film, where it's presented in this certain way, where I'm like, you're, it feels inauthentic if you're someone that really is in the know. And I feel like Chasing Amy is the complete opposite of that. It is so clearly written by a guy that just lives, eats, breathes, sleeps comics. I, I didn't even know, though, actually, that the studio is modeled after Allred's. I think that's that's super interesting. But yeah, I, uh, I, I really do really like that movie a lot. And I, I hope that if anyone hasn't seen it and they're hearing us talk about it now, I think they should definitely check it out. I and mean, if you like comics from this time period, it's a total love letter to that time. Oh, it truly is. And, you know, definitely justice for the inkers out there. Those traces. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> 
Those dastardly tracers. <laughs> okay, this next bit here is something I definitely passed over in 1996, and I am kicking myself that I did not pay attention to this, because it is telling us that the anti-gravity room on the sci-fi channel is being renewed for a second season. And I said to myself, what is the anti-gravity room? And having checked it out, I realized that is a terrible name, because no wonder I didn't give it any attention. It does not describe the joys and the excitement of this program. Okay, so the anti-gravity room is a Canadian production that is run just by these like young college kids. I think even one of them must be a high schooler. And it is like the complete video companion to Wizard Magazine. They review comics. They interview creators. They just get into the behind the scenes of the industry and what is going on in that moment. Go to YouTube now, start watching it, and you will see that, oh, okay, it is definitely just carrying through with all the stuff we talk about in the magazine. Then it goes and interviews these people live, shows their studios, gets them to do skits like various comic creators like Jeff Smith from Bone or James Robinson and all these great people like that were writing and creating in this era. And it is just, I mean, I again, I can't believe that I didn't know this existed because I would have been tuning in and taping every episode. I'm so happy somebody else did because I cannot promote this highly enough. Even all these years later, it is a time capsule. Go back and check it out. But Riches, did you have any idea that the anti-gravity room existed in the 90s? I had never heard of this, actually, which blew my mind when you sent me the video of this because I knew we were going to be talking about it. And when I started skimming through it, I mean, I was like totally enamored. I I, I don't know how this flew under my radar. And I I have to think because I did watch a lot of sci-fi channel around this time period. In fact, I mean, I have like very specific 1996 sci-fi channel memories of watching reruns of like droids and Ewoks and Thunderbirds and stuff. So like, I have no idea how this one flew past me other than the fact that the name says absolutely nothing about the show, like you said, because I mean, I would have been all about this. Yeah, seeing like the Extreme Studio stuff on here was so cool to me. It, it kind of reminds me, there was actually another show. I don't know if you've seen this. This is another one for the listeners to check out. It's called Name Your Adventure. That was a very similar kind of thing where um, I think it was hosted by Mario Lopez. <laughs> of course it was. Uh, but there's an episode where he visits Extreme Studios and like all I could think was, man, like whoever was handling their PR at the time was on point because like they, they were getting them out there, you know, like they, they were getting that public visibility. Yeah, I mean, they were all over the place. In fact, uh, one of our our most devoted listeners, Mark, shout out to you. Uh, recently for my birthday, he sent me two VHS tapes of Hero TV, which was a very similar style program put out by Hero Illustrated. And one tape has an interview with Jim Lee at his homage studios, and one tape has an interview with Rob Liefeld at Extreme Studios. Although it doesn't have like the MTV edge of this one, because because it was being produced by young people, it definitely has that youthful edge energy and excitement to it. We found out about Wizard trying to get their own TV show off the ground that just never quite went anywhere. But it's, it's interesting to think uh, of all the programming that was available that maybe went missed. But something that was big and green and couldn't be overlooked in the 90s, or really any era, is The Incredible Hulk. And Wizard is offering up their ideas for a casting call, a casting call featuring the green Goliath. So we are going to check out here really what their thoughts thoughts were. I mean, they got him on the cover, so they got Hulk on their braids. And Riches, why don't you start us out with their pick for the Hulk? Uh, so for the Hulk, they say, why mess with success? The original live-action Hulk in the Incredible Hulk TV series, Lou Ferrigno is still massive enough to do a great Hulk. Um, and I think I'd agree with that. That was that's probably fair at the time. I mean, there, who else would it have been at this time period, really? You know, like... 
I mean, the, the first person that comes to mind in this era for me would maybe be the ultimate warrior. Um, but, you know, because every promo was, you know, so maybe. Uh, yeah, I mean, he definitely. I mean, that, that really does fit. It feels like it would have to be a wrestler. Definitely. He's certainly the physique, but yeah, I mean, Lou Ferrigno already had the name recognition, so I feel like, you know, you know, and he still looked great, so why change it? And for Bruce Banner, they say, we need someone who's brainy looking and courageous and who can look almost haunted. David Duchovny from The X-Files fits the bill. I mean, I know our past guests, Steven Sapellis and Andy Flowers, definitely agree with that casting choice, but I just like, he is so laid back, David Duchovny, you know, he's so laconic that that would be a fascinating take. I mean, I can totally see it, but I, it's unexpected all the same. Yeah, I feel like this is, you know, Wizard did a lot of casting over the years, and some of them were kind of like, please, eye-roll inducing, but like, this one actually, I, I think is pretty good. Like, I, I can definitely see it. I mean, even the image they have of him there with that, like, uh, whatever that is, like, you know, lab interrogation lighting and his, like, suit and tie, I'm like, I, you know, I can feel it. Like, this looks like it could be a publicity still from a Hulk movie. Yeah, next up here for the Hulk's longtime love interest, and at this time, wife, Betty Banner, uh, they want Sandra Bullock, who is being touted as the star of The Net. Yeah, she definitely wasn't huge just yet. I mean, Speed was big, but her star was on the rise. Uh, I think David Duchovny and Sandra Bullock in a movie together would just be a fascinating chemistry, and I, I feel like Betty Banner, there's really not a whole lot of character, you know, you look at all the actresses who have played Betty. It's kind of like, eh, whatever. We'll take who we can get. So uh, the caliber of Sandra Bullock with a little bit of humor. Yes. She's a lady that can talk. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think for Sandra, knowing what her career goes on to, it was probably a, a probably a good career, career move that she did not do a Hulk movie in 1996. But uh, sure. Why not? She, she could be Betty Banner. I mean, she, she you know. She's attractive. The end. I don't like that. Yeah, real quick, their next pick here is shows just like their pick for the Hulk. They're kind of phoning it in, just going with the status quo, because they say for She-Hulk, hey, bodybuilder Corey Everson is supposed to be She-Hulk in an upcoming telefilm, so who are we to argue? Plus, they had just interviewed her for the magazine. Maybe they wanted to get in good by promoting her more. Fair enough. Good physique. Paint her green, you know. <laughs> So I, I love the description we've got here for Rick Jones. For the Hulk sidekick, we needed someone adventurous and yet kind of dopey. Johnny Depp of Don Juan DeMarco and Nick of Time as our man. You know, uh, calling Johnny Depp somewhat adventurous and kind of dopey in 2022 is about the most hilarious and apt description ever given the trial that's just gone down. Sure, he has the look. I mean, I, I certainly in 1986 wouldn't have used those as the films to describe him. Uh, I, I think Edward Scissorhands might have had a little a little more high profile than those. But And for Marlo Jones, we have Stacey Haddock, uh, who they reference from Kindred the Embraced and Superboy, would be perfect for the perfect redhead. Again, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think Wizard put a lot of depth in their thought behind their female casting picks. They're like, sure, he did a comic book show. She'll do a movie, sure. Yeah. <laughs> For Hulk, similarly green nemesis, the abomination. This is an interesting choice. Might be kind of a deep pull for some people. The yin to Hulk's yang would be pretty neat if played by Ralph Moeller from Best of the Best 2, which is a film I recently picked up on VHS, but I have not watched yet, so I cannot speak to his acting abilities to be intimidating, but he looks pretty greased up and intense here. Although I would still say it's got to be like a full costume character maybe you're just looking for the voice and not the physique right if we had a 1996 hulk movie 
I I see Abomination being almost like Goro from the first Mortal Kombat movie. Like, yeah, that's perfect. You know, there's no way they would have just they wouldn't have had a live action actor in that role. I think that if they did, they would have been heavily prosthetic and probably had some kind of animatronic element or something. But like, you're not going to take a buff guy and paint him green. Like, that's, you know, that never would have worked. Or you just literally take the Goro suit and paint it green. <laughs> <laughs> so for the leader, we have Alan Rickman of Die Hard and Robin Hood Prince of Thieves fame, uh, who they think would be great as the Hulk's arch nemesis. We're kind of partial to the Jiffy Pop head from a couple of years ago. Yeah, I, you know, that's that's a fun pick. I mean, I, I think I think he has the acting chops as his, as his career would go on to prove time and time again. Yeah, I'm actually surprised they didn't just go lazy casting again and chose uh, the current voice of the leader in animation, as they covered in the previous article, Matt Frewer. Yeah, I mean, he was just on Generation X. Maybe that's why. They're like, ugh, we don't like his Jim Carrey impression. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so for General Thunderbolt Ross, they want Seymour Cassell from Indecent Proposal. That's another film I have on VHS, but I have yet to watch. I know it is infamous, but I, I just feel like a mustache goes a long way in these casting calls, you know? Yeah, I feel like some of these casting picks were just like, this person sort of vaguely resembles this character because their hair is the right color sort of thing. You know, it's like you, you could have just put any, you know, any old guy with a mustache in that picture and use that same description. So I, I think I'm more in line with your thinking there. So for the final casting, I don't have a lot to say here. It's a group of villains called the UFOs, which I guess if you're reading a Hulk comics, you know who they are. But it's kind of like I'm not really attached to these characters. But who's first up there, Riches? For Vector, the leader of the UFOs has Corbin Burnson of L.A. Law written all over him. Not to be confused with Vector from Despicable Me. Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> Next up, for somebody called X-Ray, they want Matthew Perry, a baby-faced Matthew Perry, fresh from the set of Friends. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if they have him in the budget for this, sure, whatever. He's, he's a young guy. He's, you know. Uh, for Vapor, Marsha Cross, who is perfectly diabolical every week on Melrose Place, is a perfect match for the UFO's vixen. Okay. <laughs> and then the last one here for the UFO's, UFO's, whatever you say it, uh, is a character called Ironclad. They want Andrew Bernarski from The Program, a film I have not seen. He's just kind of a generic-looking, semi-in-shape dude of the 90s with long hair, but he's got this, like, bandana on his forehead. And I, looking out of the corner of my eye, I thought it was Pauly Shore, because it's kind of, like, in the crease there. And I was just like, oh, yeah, oh, no, it's not Pauly Shore. It's not Gerardo either. It's not, you know, any of those 90s guys that were rocking that look. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a set photo from, like, Biodome or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's another one of those ones, kind of like uh, Abomination on the, the previous page, where it's just like, what were they actually picturing here? Because CG was certainly not at the capability of in any way, you know, realistically pulling off a character like Ironclad in 1996. So were they voice casting or did they think that somehow a body paint was going to turn this guy 10 times the size of a normal human? I would love to know what the thought process was. Yeah, so we're closing it up with Doc Samson. Uh, nice guy Kevin Sorbo of Hercules, The Legendary Journey, is a great pick as the green-haired psychiatrist slash adventurer. Disappointed! Yeah, I was going to say, nice guy's a funny term for Kevin Sorbo in 2022. He's, he's, a, he's a divisive figure these days. I mean, but sure, uh, you know, if he was if he was doing Hercules in 96, no reason to think he wouldn't have taken part in uh, a live-action Hulk. So, they, you know, maybe. 
you know, trying to think of an alternate casting from that era, somebody who is, has that physique but also can exude the intelligence or at least confidence. I think I would go back to the world of pro wrestling like you did with the Warrior and pick out Kevin Nash. Yeah, I mean, like he's just he's got that look to him and he's got the ponytail already going. He just, you know, dye it green. I feel like he could do it because, you know, you know, just give him a few lines to say and he has a little smirk and he's uh, dealing with the Hulk or David Duchovny is probably who he'd be talking to, right? <laughs> I can see it. I mean, I, I feel like Doc Sampson looks a little more grizzled to me than Kevin Sorbo. So I feel like, yeah, you're, I think you're more on that that right track. It needs to be somebody that looks a little harder in the face. That's That's got some miles, you know? Yeah, definitely. So uh, now that we have you here with us, Riches, you know, we got to talk about your claim to fame. You know, you work in the toy industry quite a bit. And so we are going to check out what was going on with Merch Madness. Y'all ready for this? First up, a Walmart-exclusive Overpower Power Surge series based on the collectible card game is limited to 10,000 figures and includes a first-time Adam Warlock figure and a Scarlet Spider with glorious painted-on hoodie. This one really caught me by surprise because, you know, in addition to just being a Walmart exclusive, I didn't have Walmart in my area growing up, so I had no chance of ever seeing this. But the fact that there was a toy line tying into the Overpower card game, that just fascinates me. Yeah, they, you know, that I think that was really the the coolest thing about the Toy Biz Marvel line, and you really, even to this day, I feel like Hasbro's Marvel Legends line hasn't quite gotten to the depths that the Toy Biz line did. I think it just, like, it felt like nothing was off limits. Like, I mean, when you think about where the line kind of has its humble beginnings, where you can see that Series 1 ad on the back of Jim Lee's X-Men number 1, and to think here we are five years later, and I mean, they're just, like, into, like, Z-list characters. They've had hundreds of hundreds of figures. Like, it's so wild, and The other thing that's so cool about this time period for me is that they are not afraid to put out product that's very current with the comics, because I feel like you don't see that so much now. Now it's it's all based around like what's going to sell legacy characters and maybe every few waves they'll slip in one. Well, yeah, Avi Arad was definitely right in there. And especially like, you know, when Maximum Carnage came out, they released a Maximum Carnage set, right? Or when Age of Apocalypse was happening just right after they had Age of Apocalypse figures. So he definitely had his finger on the pulse of what Marvel was doing. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because like when I was when I was reading this stuff and I was collecting as a kid, like I don't think it dawned on me that some of these characters like Domino, Deadpool, Cable, Gideon, like that they were like really, really new, like. Knowing what the lead time of production is on an action figure, some of those things were probably being put into development, like, within a month of the character's debut. Yeah, I mean, Rob Liefeld has said specifically it happened even before his X-Force books came out. He had all these character sketches and designs and the Toy Biz people were in there, like, picking out the ones they liked the best and put them into production. So yeah, it was basically coming out within that year time frame. And that's that's so fascinating to me that, like, so if a character debuts in 91, their toy's on shelves in 92, like, but they probably spent that whole year manufacturing that figure. It really is a fascinating world. Now, speaking of Toy Biz, though, some other things they had in production at this time was the Spider-Man Skyscraper Stunt Set series. These are mini playset. I see them as more like glorified Happy Meal toys. They're not mini like Mighty Max. It's not that type of thing. It's just they're kind of, uh, I don't know what you would call it, like a module where you put all the pieces together and it would be like a a top of a skyscraper playset. So, for example, Kingpin's 
Crime Central has Spider-Man attached to a top and then it spins out of the skyscraper spire. It's just an interesting idea, but they look so cheap. I guess it's just a lower price point toy, maybe. Yeah, there was so there's a lot of that stuff at that time. I mean, there was yeah, the, uh, the the classic upsell. You, you hook them with the one cheap set and then you just keep it rolling with the connecting <laughs> set. But Toy Biz wasn't dead yet. What else did they have? Heavy hitters are like Rock'em Sock'em robots with Marvel characters. And Mutant Monsters features Wolverine as a werewolf, among others. I think this was another thing that was really in the air at the time, because they're kind of reminiscent of, I think it was Milton Bradley that made Karate Fighters, if you remember that line. Oh, yeah! Very similar concept, but I know there was like, I think, I think Karate Fighters might have done an officially licensed DC Batman set as well, but... Uh, yeah, so I, I guess I don't know if these are the echo of Karate Fighters or if it's the other way around. Well, what's interesting, too, is, like, they did another iteration of this because they're kind of handheld, right? They're not connected to a ring like the Rock'em Sock'em robots. And I was at RetroCon a couple of years back, and I picked up a set that was very similar, but they were smaller, and they had, like, almost like, you know, Xbox-style controllers that you hold, and then you insert the character, you know, I got Hulk and Iron Man and put them together, and I brought them home for my three three-year-old and he just loves to bash them together like so it's a proven formula that still entertains the kids but yeah there's definitely uh, a, a lot of scuffed up toys now uh, as a result of these from all the the, the playware that they bashed against each other Oh, for sure, yeah. Although surprisingly durable, these ones. But uh, the next thing here that they brought up, I was really surprised that this is something I never saw on shelves because it's amazing that it even was created. It is the Weapon X Lab playset that allows you to create like a rubbery adamantium skeleton for Wolverine and place it inside a translucent Wolverine figure body, which is just such a cool idea. And obviously it's very reminiscent of the Kenner from the Terminator 2 Judgment Day series where you could uh, create, you know, over a skeleton instead of creating the skeleton, you were putting the flesh on top of it. Yeah, the uh, the bio flesh regenerator. Yes, that's it. Yeah, so I mean, it's just like the inverse of that, right? So I really applaud Toybiz for coming up with, hey, this is a good idea, and actually creating a a new spin on it that works for the theme of the character Wolverine perfectly. Yeah, this is one of those things that I, I think this happened a lot. You know, when when you're a kid, you have a very short life cycle for toys, and sometimes you circle back if something re- regenerates your interest. But usually, you have like your one or two years where you're Turtles, and then your one or two years where you're X-Men or your J.J. or Ghostbusters, whatever. So, like, I remember as a kid, I, I was really, really in for, like, those first, like, four or five waves of X-Men, but there was those certain characters that you just never got to. Like, they never did Jubilee in that initial line. But then, like, sometimes years later, you'd see, like, I think it was in 1995, they finally released Storm in the white deco so that her outfit matched the animated series, and so I had to go back and get that. I feel like if I had, if I had seen the Weapon X lab at retail, like, even though I was probably already kind of a little bit past my Toy Biz X-Men phase, I absolutely would have wanted this thing, and for sure it would have sucked me back in for a time period because it's just so cool looking, and obviously uh, it, it's such a iconic moment in the in the series animated series too. You know when he when he breaks out of the lab and kind of goes running through the woods and. It almost, I think, probably would have doubled for me, too, as a uh, Luke Skywalker Bokta chamber as well. So uh, <laughs> That's awesome. I definitely would have wanted it for that. Uh, in fact, I think I ended up uh, cannibalizing my uh, my Power Rangers Power Dome playset to use the tube that Zordon's head was in one time for uh, Wolverine's Weapon X Lab. So I feel like if, if I'd known an actual toy existed, I would have been all about it. Oh, that's genius. Yeah, if I had had it, I definitely would have been busting out the camcorder and using it as a set for one of my action figure movies. But why don't you close this out here? 
and finally, Marvel tune-ups are giant color forms-like posters for your wall featuring Spider-Man and the ever-popular X-Men. Hey, kids, they're like color forms, but bigger! <laughs> and, and now, I think uh, that, that same concept has been blown up, but even bigger, and now they make them of sports stars and, and stuff, and they call them fatheads, um, but... It's funny, too, because I, I know uh, a guy, Mel Burncrant, who I think he's got to be in his 80s now, but he's responsible for so many of the really cool color films toys from the 60s. So it's interesting that that concept was still relevant all those years later, you know, and, and that, that basically just a, a slightly altered version of that was was still landing with kids in the 90s just as well as it was 30, 40 years earlier. Yeah, you can definitely see the Avi Rods like, we're not doing just action figures. Every toy, every toy. Like, because there's these X-Men comic books with talking pages. Like, you push this sound bar to do sound effects on it. I mean, my kids have those for their storybooks now, but I guess at the time that seemed exciting. But more interesting is also they're talking about in the junk drawer section, holographic sunglasses from Polaroid featuring Marvel characters. So it'd be like, you know, Wolverine and Sabretooth facing off inside the lenses as a hologram like you would get in a trading card. Oh, man. But the best part is what Polaroid calls this technology, quote, Krypton Laser 3D Fantagrams. <laughs> that's, like, that's, that's like the most 90s phrase I've ever heard in my life. Um, <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen these, but if, if they're anywhere as cool as what I'm imagining right now, they'll be in my eBay cart in about the next five minutes. I am such an absolute just like nut for those Fatal Attractions crossover comics with the hologram covers. I think that is genuinely like, you know, I, I am, I'm an unashamed lover of gimmick covers, but I, I think a real true hologram like that, not, you know, a lot of people seem to confuse all these various terms like lenticular and prism and foil and hologram, but an actual 3D hologram is like the coolest thing in the world. It'll never get old. It's still awesome. It's as, it's as awesome as when 2022 as it was in 1993. So if those glasses are what I'm thinking they are and I'm looking right now, I'll be owning those momentarily. Get styling, fanboy. <laughs> now moving on to video game news, The Tick is getting a game for the Sega Saturn as well as a home computer version for younger gamers. So I remember The Tick had a Super Nintendo game and I'm curious to know how they upped the ante for Sega Saturn with all its capabilities. On the X-Men side of things, X-Men Mojo World is the latest mutant adventure for the Sega Game Gear. Might have been the last, because I mean, this is like, you know, Sega didn't have too much longer to go after the Saturn. Uh, but also announced is a game called X-Women, The Sinister Virus, starring Rogue, Storm, and Phoenix, which is actually never released. I feel like there was like a past guest or somebody we interviewed that talked about the X-Women game. Maybe it was just somebody online that was sharing that with us. Yeah, there actually is... um video footage of this game on YouTube, by the way. So if anyone wants to see what it would have looked like, it, it is there to, to at least see it. And I love all the X-Men platforming games of this era, and I'm sure that it would have been right in line with all of those. So I don't know what gave them cold feet on this one. I think it would have been awesome, but I, I don't know if it was just the the old wisdom of, you know, girl figures don't sell, girl video games don't sell. I don't know, but it's a shame, man, because I think it would have been really cool. Now, the last thing I'll mention here is they announced that How to Draw the Marvel Way, that classic art instruction book, is now a CD-ROM that you can put into your computer and then get the instructions for how to, you know, create your favorite superheroes or create your own, you know, in a, you know, we were talking earlier, about that digital space so I don't know if they were just giving you instructions you were supposed to draw on paper or create it in the computer but I have to ask you Riches how seminal was How to Draw the Marvel Way to you in your uh, years as a budding young artist? Oh that that book changed my life 
I mean, I can't even tell you. I, I'm probably on my fifth or sixth copy of How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way. I still look at it. But my original copy was given to me by my Aunt Laura when I was probably, you don't know, five, six, seven years old. I still have it, you know, sans cover. <laughs> and it's totally just, you know, looks like it's been through a war zone, but it's very well loved. Uh, I don't ever remember a CD-ROM adaptation because I feel like it's the kind of thing that if I'd known it existed, I definitely would have wanted it. I also had another book that was done by klutz publishing i think it's called which is yeah that's the one i had that had like the shiny covers kind of metallic and little holograms in it that it had a little packet of pens that were attached to it that's the one yeah i had that too so i mean i was i was very very enamored with how to draw anything uh, you know marvel branded and it was same thing with like all the wizard like brutes and babes and anything that had like any kind of how to draw tutorial like scholastic book fairs would always have those how to draw books i mean i I can't even tell you how many of these things I've absorbed that are like, it's, it's so funny to me now to think like some like, you know, hack artist was probably paid next to nothing to do these things in their office job. They didn't even remember drawing them. And those images are so iconic to me and so burned into my brain, like start with a box, you know, round off the edges, like that kind of stuff. Like, so without a doubt, if I had had even the slightest clue that I had to draw Marvel CD-ROM existed, I definitely would have wanted it. In fact, I kind of want it now, except the question would be uh, what, what hardware would it require to play it on in, 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 in the modern day? Well, you know, you probably never heard about it because it wasn't hyped enough in the pages of the Marvel comics themselves. But a couple of guys who know about the world of hype are Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane. So it's time we get into Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. Man, that is a transition if I've ever heard one. That's <laughs> what we do. <laughs> This just in. Mark Silvestri leaves Image. It's true. Top Cow Studios is forming as a separate publishing entity outside of the Image banner. Quote, a Top Cow representative cited irreconcilable differences with one of the Image partners as a main reason for Top Cow's departure. Quote, our relationship with Wizard is strong enough that we felt Wizard deserved to hear of it first, said Brad Foxhoven, vice president of business affairs at Top Cow. <sighs> what does Silvestri have to say about the split? Quote, I had spoken to Todd McFarland. Marlin, whose opinion I respect greatly as a friend and peer, and he understood our concerns. Todd did not want us to leave, but again, understood that we had to do what we had to do. Yeah, it was funny as I was reading that article, it's, I'm like, you know, I'm almost like trying to guess who it is as I'm starting the article, and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to guess it's probably not Todd, and it's like he talked to Todd, I'm like, okay, one down, five to go, I'll be like... Nobody has a problem with Wills Portacio, right? Nobody has a problem with Jim Valentino. He's everybody's lovable uncle. Eric Larson could be a little prickly, but I think everybody still loves Eric Larson. Uh, that kind of leaves Rob Liefeld, but he was almost out the door completely, right? He's doing Maximum Press. And then there is a piece of the puzzle that is connected to Rob. I recall on the Heroes Reborn episodes of the Rob Observations podcast, he mentioned that Marvel kind of came to them and said, are there any other image guys you want to bring into the project and Mark Silvestri's name was brought up and Jim Lee immediately shot it down. Just, nope, not going to do it. And so you would think maybe there's a problem with Jim. Uh, so it's Jim or Rob, Jim or Rob. I'm not going to reveal it now. I think, you know, based on that, that it would be Jim. But I will tell you in the next issue, we get the reveal and it is blatant and uh, it's actually kind of funny. So I'm going to have to leave it the mystery. 
mystery for now, a cliffhanger for you. So speaking of separate imprints and Jim Lee, uh, the Wildcats creator gets a full interview in this issue announcing the launch of his new Homage Comics line, which will be home to such creator-owner projects as Astro City by Kurt Busiek, Strangers in Paradise from Terry Moore, and Leave it the Chance by the team of James Robinson and veteran artist Paul Smith. Says Lee, Homage Comics is a separate entity from Image Comics with a different sensibility and different approach to distribution. Homage books are creator-owned projects, which are out of the mainstream straight superhero genre. Lee also reveals that at one time we were going to do a very cheap line of books that were black and white and had a more mature feel, kind of like R-rated superheroes. I guess Image Comics were considered PG-13 comics? Well, Deathblow is the sensitive killer. It's kind of funny, again, like, what you know, when you say that, like, Jim seems like the sort of soft-spoken and, like, you know, he seems like the least, like, aggressive of the group. And I'm like, when I see, like, some of those, you know, 30, 40, 50-ish issues of Spawn, like, you're getting people with, like, their eyes getting gouged out and, you know, eaten by rats and stuff. So I'm like, what's he possibly imagining is the next step up? (laughs) Jim is the last person I would have expected that to come from. Yeah, it just never seemed like he needed to push it over the edge. Uh, But responding to questions about whether or not Image was now breaking up, Lee says, quote, The way the company was set up, it was designed to facilitate the needs of seven different creators who wanted to maintain their independence and do what they wanted to do in comics. The great thing about Image is that the company lets me do that. It's not a problem. (laughs) Which, I don't know, it feels like Jim wasn't sticking around for too much longer either himself. Uh, (laughs) Lee also reveals the origin of the name homage which he says was an inside joke between he scott williams and wills portacio about the idea of swiping someone else's comics work and justifying it as an homage to the artist quote we mean it in a very ironic way and of course that's not something that we condone or do you know that's really funny i I don't think i ever knew that that's where the name came from so that that is a really uh that's one big thing i've gleaned out of this issue yeah always interesting to learn the origins of people's company name choices but why don't you give us the next story here So, in Todd McFarlane news, the creator of Spawn was reportedly featured in the May 20th, 1996 issue of Forbes magazine in an article titled Getting Rich Outside Corporate America. Todd is also the official profile interview on the last page of the issue and answers the classic wizard questionnaire. Yeah, it was an interesting choice because it makes you think, like, how many times has Todd McFarlane been interviewed by Wizard, whether in a special issue or the official magazine or whatever? What more could he possibly bring to the table? But there were some interesting responses here. For example, you know, they say, what is the first comic you've read? Eh, some Jerry Lewis comic. Whenever we went on drives, my mom and dad would throw comics at me and say, here, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) The next one is an interesting glimpse into Todd's own self-image, because they say, person who would play you in a movie about yourself, Joe Pesci, because he's the only one who could act psycho enough. (laughs) Yeah, that one really stood out to me as a very Todd answer. (laughs) And then finally here, person you would most like to work with, Spike Lee. Ah, Todd, a little jealous of Rob getting those jeans commercials. Wants to do one himself. Yeah, that one That one definitely stuck out, too. You know, the rest is pretty standard stuff. You know, your favorite snack at 2 a.m., chocolate-covered raisins. You know, like, it's nothing too deep. But it was interesting to see inside the mind of Todd and that he thinks he's Joe Pesci. That's who he sees when he looks in the mirror. Maybe this last question here is a little tongue-in-cheek, though. Person you most want to meet, hook me up with Jesus Christ. What an answer. <laughs> yeah, just going right to the top. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think uh, after his uh, his former his former column, uh, Todd McFarlane ego, I think he pretty much got everything he wanted to say out of, off his chest. So uh, they're they're really getting into some stuff now. They'll soon uncover all his dark secrets. 
But now it is time that we bring you our final tally. So in this issue, Jim Lee has been mentioned nine times, and Todd McFarlane has been mentioned nine times. Oh, they've tied it up. But that brings our running total. After five years of publication, Jim Lee has been mentioned 336 times, Todd McFarlane 353. That is staggering. You know, it's funny how much these guys probably really do owe their careers to this magazine. I mean, you can't buy that kind of press. In five years, to get mentioned 353 times in one publication? Have we done the math? If you if you divide that by whatever, what is 60 issues, right? Like, like, I mean, he's averaging almost six mentions per issue. Like, that's crazy to me. Yeah, well, and I'm almost certain the only reason Jim is behind is he took a sabbatical for a year where he was not mentioned by name, even though his studio was still publishing comics. But I do know, based on what our Wizard staffer interviews have told us, there is a period where Todd McFarlane refuses to be mentioned in the magazine. So that might tip the scales in just a few years. So we shall see. But, you know, we want to dip out here not on the ominous snow. We want to give you a few laughs. So let's check out Turok's Top 10. So the topic of this Turok's Top 10 is actually a debate that has been raging in the pages of Magic Words over about a year. People debating who is better, Star Wars or Star Trek. So here is Top 10 Ways Star Trek Kicks Ass Over Star Wars. I don't even know if that's proper grammar, but we'll do our best here. Hopefully it doesn't offend too many people on too many levels, so... Yeah, I was going to say, get, get the uh, get the, the beeps ready. Uh, <laughs> uh, number 10, nobody open mouth kisses their sister on the Enterprise. It's true. Kirk has kissed a lot of alien women, but luckily no family members to date. All right, number nine, Wedge gets slapped around every movie but lives. When a red shirt dies, he stays dead, damn it. <laughs> number eight, Kirk and crew have saved planets. Luke and pals have escaped garbage bins. <laughs> All right, number seven. With the exception of, like, three Klingons, all the Trek aliens speak English. Number six, get that beep button ready. No f- Ewoks. Oh! <laughs> They're wrong. I love Ewoks. Yeah, I'm an Ewoks kid, too. I'm waiting for that Disney Plus Ewoks series. I know it's coming one day. Another shout-out to Lister Mark. Also for my birthday, he got me a screener copy VHS of Ewoks The Battle for Endor, my favorite Star Wars movie. So, you rock, Mark, once again. All right, now, number five. No one can say salt and pepper like Patrick Stewart. Number one, salt and pepper. <laughs> uh, number four, two things, you, man, Rand. All right, so I guess they're just fans of one of the few female characters on the Enterprise. Very nice. Number three, Star Trek Ensigns, much tougher to kill than Stormtroopers. Even that little wimpy kid from Return to Space Mountain in The Wrath of Khan. I don't know, that's that's a deep pull. Number two, I'm going to show you just how much I uh, like Star Wars more than Star Trek, because I don't even know what this word is. Gwynan can save your problems and get you drunk. That's uh, Guinan, Whoopi Goldberg's character. Oh, Guinan, oh, this is the Next Generation character, yeah, I, I only know that because of Playmates figures. Uh, <laughs> Guyman can solve your problems and get you drunk. R2-D2 can show you Viewmaster slides. 
And the final reason that Star Trek kicks ass over Star Wars. What would you rather hear? 3PO, where can he be? Or, you've got Genesis Con, but you don't have me. If you want me, you're going to have to come down here. You're going to have to come down here. So there you go. A dramatic reading from William Shatner trumps anything that Mark Hamill delivers. <laughs> I don't know, man. When you read that list, I'm kind of like, well, maybe they were right at the time. But I, I don't know. If, if, I'm, if I'm taking it as a whole, I'm, I'm definitely wars over track. I don't know. I was raised with Star Wars, but my best friend has a Star Trek podcast and has indoctrinated me for over 20 years. So I think I have to go with Trek ultimately. Yeah, I mean, I should say in fairness, I, I've seen a lot more wars than Trek. And also, I think that uh, Star Wars is doing their darndest to some of their recent output to, to let Star Trek eclipse them. So maybe that answer will change over time. Yeah, and I gotta say, Trek is really heating up, man. They're trying to catch up to all the programming that Star Wars has put out over the years with Paramount Plus just seems like there's a new show every week. But speaking of new shows, even this one has to come to an end. So, Riches, I really want to thank you for reaching out. I'm so glad that we uh, crossed paths online and that you found us and were interested enough to come share your thoughts, because, man, what a fun conversation tonight. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's always cool to geek out with someone that has the same love of Batman Returns that I do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and thanks for hooking me up with the last and missing X-Men Hardy's toy I was missing. Absolutely. Got to help each other out with our collection. But why don't you tell our listeners about some of your latest projects that you're most excited about? Um, Probably the thing that I'm I'm most proud of at the moment that I would, you, you mentioned earlier in the show, the upcoming G.I. Joe classified Sergeant Slaughter figure will be going up for pre-order, I believe, to coincide with San Diego Comic-Con. So uh, keep checking HasbroPulse.com for that. Other than that, uh, I there is a book on Kickstarter right now, G.I. Joe After Action Report. Tim Seeley did a cover for that. I'm coloring that. Jeez, I'm trying to think what's uh, what's not currently wrapped up in non-disclosure agreements. Well, just real quick with your Sergeant Slaughter art, is that going to be available as a print or a poster at some point to your knowledge? Um, For now, we got it by the box. I, I'm not entirely sure. It's sort of a weird situation because Sergeant Slaughter is a real-life person and has his own separate rights contract with Hasbro versus fictional characters. So I can promise you at some point, whether it's through me or through him or through Hasbro, you will be able to get that art in poster form. I just don't know how or when or where, but it, it will happen. But yeah, other than that, uh, Boss Fight Studio. I do a lot of work for them, so check out BossFightShop.com. I designed all the Zorro figures from Series 2 and 3. You might even see one that bears a vague resemblance to me. <laughs> there's some Legends of Lucha Libre figures I did for them to check out. I don't know. I mean, I, there's, I, I'm always, you could ask this question in a month and you'd get 10 different answers. So there's, I'm always juggling stuff. A busy guy indeed, but I think we proved unequivocally tonight that two Adams are better than one. But if people want to catch up with just one Adam for a time and find out what you've been up to, where can they find you on? Online. I would say the best way to, to find out all this stuff is to just keep up with my social media, which is, again, inconsistent, just like my work. So if it's on Facebook, uh, my page is at Adam Riches Art, but I also have a personal page that's just Adam Riches, and you'll know it's me because it's my face and it has a blue check mark. On Twitter, I'm at Adam Riches Art. I've just recently, for the first time ever, started posting on Instagram because I'm already overwhelmed with social media as it is, but you'll know that one's me because the Sergeant Slaughter's on there, and I think that page is at Adam.Riches.The number 100. But yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm staying busy. There's always going to be stuff in the pipeline. 
and there's tons of cool stuff coming out. So uh, that's that's the best way to find out. I'm super accessible on all of those. So if you have any questions, comments, just want to follow friend requests, whatever, ask questions, or just keep up with what I'm doing, that that's the place to see it. And uh, AdamRiches.com if you just want to kind of dig through the archive of all the old stuff. Digging through archives of old stuff sounds a lot like what we do over here. But if you want to stay in touch with Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, you too can check out our archives at wizardscomics.com. You can find all of our social media posts where we are always giving you awesome scans from issues of Wizard Magazine and comics of the 90s at Wizards Comics on Twitter at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram. Of course, you can also find us on YouTube at Wizards Podcast where we are always bringing you new haul videos featuring plenty of uh, Wizard ephemera and 90s comic books that are featured in the pages of Wizard as well as, you know, occasionally we get together and have some more fun uh, with different elements of the comic book fandom. So that is something to subscribe to and stay connected to. As far as what is coming up next, well, I will tell you, we have an interview with comic book writer extraordinaire Ron Mars. Yes, this was a very big one for our pal Steven Sapellis, so he joined me for that conversation. So you can look forward to that edition of The Wizard Files, as well as... Michael's coming back for episode 61. It's true. It won't just be the Adam show. So you can stay tuned for that awesome reunion of sorts. You know, he's been out and about. We're going to get the details. What were you doing, Michael? Why you been away so long? But uh, either way, we thank you so much for joining us. Make sure you rate, review, find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can spread the word. Keep retweeting and telling your friends. We keep finding more and more awesome folks that uh, want to get connected with the nostalgia of Wizard Magazine and we can't wait to find them all. But in the meantime, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.